0: My name is Dario Hasenstab, I have two degrees in international affairs and I'm here with Balder Hagritz, a former university professor of mine as well as an IR consultant. And together, we're bursting the Western bubble. Today, we will analyze how to understand global realignment through the lens of the Western bubble, because while Western societies have many strengths and significant weaknesses, in order to analyze these, we use the concept of the Western bubble. If you would like to know more about this concept, how this podcast started, or who we are, make sure to listen to our introduction episode. Hi, Balder. Why are we speaking about this topic today? And what even is global realignment?
1: Hi, Dario. Well, global realignment is something that we have referenced in the past, maybe not specifically with that term, but it is the idea that the old Western order, if you like the global order that was set up over the past 80 years or so and has its roots all the way back to the 17th century, is in on decline the, under the decline is maybe even ending and um, in very simplistic terms the global south or the non-western world if you like is starting to create dynamics that are outside of the control of this traditional order so outside of the control of western dominated united nations politics western dominated imf politics uh world trade organization politics And you can see this with things such as the BRICS, uh, which we have discussed previously, countries from the Global South coming together and say, how can we create a cooperation agreement, a cooperation system that doesn't follow London or Paris and New York? And another very important aspect of this is the Chinese initiative called the Belt and Road Initiative, the idea of China trying to make the, at least the global economic order center around Beijing or center around China as a kind of throwback to, if you like, the silk, uh, silk Road times of thousands of years ago. So we see a world that is rapidly changing where the Western systems are no longer as influential, where people are looking for alternatives, and that leads to a global realignment of geopolitics, of, of dynamics, That are no longer within reach of London or Paris or New York. And what are the facts? The Belt
0: and Road Initiative is a Chinese investment program started in 2013 with the goal of placing China at the center of global trade. This is accomplished with a focus on large infrastructure projects in mostly developing countries, such as a high-speed rail in Kenya or a new deep water port in Sri Lanka. Last week, the 10th anniversary celebrations of the Belt and Road Initiative were held in Beijing, and a number of world leaders traveled to China. The guest of honor, however, was Vladimir Putin in his first trip outside the former Soviet Union territory since the ICC issued a warrant for his arrest. Afghanistan's Taliban were also present, with China receiving a preliminary team who went to start their their ascension into the Belt and Road Initiative.
1: What is the bubble?
0: So when we're talking about you know the Belt and Road uh, Belt and Road initiative and you know this global realignment I think it's important first to understand why is this why is it so important to China um this Belt and Road uh, Belt and Road
1: initiative China has developed its economy and its geopolitical presence on the world stage if you like incredibly rapidly since essentially the death of chairman mao uh, since the 1980s china has grown very very fast but initially in the 80s in the 90s and maybe in the beginning of the 21st century that was done by still following if you like the traditional western order the 20th century post-world war ii system created by europe and north america japan etc and over the past few 15 years or so, certainly with the uh, ascension of Xi Jinping, China has started feeling increasingly uncomfortable with that because they need to follow rules that do not correspond with their own internal domestic politics, with their own uh, perspectives on the world, and They want to go towards a situation where China actually, from their perspective, is respected sufficiently, is seen sufficiently, but also in control sufficiently of global dynamics, given their increasing importance in the global economy in terms of GDP, in terms of trade, etc. So this is a way for China to say, we need to, if you like, align away, if that is a word, uh, to realign away from Uh, that old school western type of thinking in order for us to be able to fully flourish and we want to take the rest of the world with us anyone who wants to join us please excuse me join us Uh, we we are going to be the center of a new dynamic a new model to how countries can develop a new model to how countries can cooperate because we know that we're not the only ones who feel uncomfortable with this Western dominance, with this Western bubble, if you like.
0: And so when this was announced in 2013, I mean, the, the West, and we'll get to that in a second, was obviously a bit uncomfortable. But the rest of the world, I would say, reacted to this in a rather, you know, welcoming way, right? So this is a huge infrastructure project. And I don't know if I, if I at this time, I would say rising... Power, right? Rising global power announced that they're going to invest a lot of money uh, into the world. Uh, that 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 has a very nice ring to it. Uh, if I'm the leader of a of a country in the global south, that maybe really needs a railway.
1: Yes, I, it is important here to distinguish between the reaction of states of governments on the one hand and local populations on the other hand. So, if you are a average, stereotypical. Um, Newly independent country, newly independent in the sense of decolonized right in the 1960s, you you decolonized uh, from Western from Western oppression, if you like, and now you're facing a world in which you have two different opportunities, one, you have the West who offers you investments based on an awful lot of Western values, you need to democratize, you need to liberalize, you need to uh, embrace the IMF, you need to embrace the World Bank, all those kinds of things. Or you've got China who just says, hey, here we've got a big bag of money, we'll build a railroad, we just want access to your gold mines, or we just want access to your oil. Then that Chinese offer is much more attractive. It's much easier to implement. It's much easier to deal with. Even the fact that there is an alternative is already important, right? Because until recently, the only thing you could do is just basically try to adapt to the wishes of the Europeans and North Americans to get any foreign investment in at all. And the fact that now there is another source of um, possible potential investment is useful. Now, at a local level, from a local population perspective, the reaction has been a little bit less enthusiastic. There has been a lot of resistance by populations who weren't happy with their own governments making decisions towards China and maybe away from the traditional you know, neo-colonial powers, if you like. But overall, from a geopolitical perspective, certainly the Global South, and again, the word Global South is a little bit of a... The, the term is a little bit confusing, and I'm just using it simplistically here. But the Global South from a Westphalian geopolitical perspective, has said, hey, this is good news because now we can actually choose our own destiny and we're no longer beholden to, if you like, this Western mafia that, I, that says, hey, that's a nice place you have there. It would be a shame if anything happens to it, right?
0: And these so, so these leaders, um, particularly from the Global South, have been very happy to, to welcome these, uh, these investments. And, I mean, we even see this when we look at global... Uh, a global trade, and here particularly at South-South trade, right? So l- large parts of, of global trade are going through the West, right? Either it's between the West or it's going into the West or out of the West. But this South-South trade is not yet, um, well, at a scale where, you know, you could see it based on, if, for example, if you look at the, how the population is, is distributed uh, uh, among the globe. And this has increased, right? So from kind of 17% of South-South trade in 2005 to... In 2021, 28%. And there are some, some serious sources that co- like attribute a lot of this growth to the Belt and Road Initiative, simply because, well, if you suddenly start connecting countries in the Global South, then they're obviously going to trade with each
1: other. It is difficult often to put your finger exactly on what the, the drivers are, but it, it is just a fact, it is just a neutral observation that... Uh, the, the West no longer, or is becoming less and less, let's put it like that, is becoming less and less a the core of global economics. If you look at the long-term dynamics and these statistics that you mentioned show that, but there are other statistics when it comes to GDP, when it comes to uh, an awful lot of um, other long-term statistics, you see a world That's where the West no longer has the power that it used to. And that is just an observation, just a fact. And there's a question, how do you react to that? But it is happening. And no one is going to stop it. Why? Because countries like India, like China, but also South Africa, Nigeria, Brazil, they all have huge populations. They've got highly educated populations. They've got huge resources. There is no need for them to always be focused on London, Paris, Berlin or Washington or New York. It is it is all uh, about reality where the rest of the world is starting to see opportunities outside of that Western model. Now, and the question is, how do we react to that, right? But the fact that it's happening is just a neutral observation. It's there.
0: It could be a neutral observation, but it's not for the West, right? Because from a Western perspective, there was... I mean I don't remember in 2013 too much uh how the how the reaction was I remember there was some um kind of excitement and some oh that's a that's a big number right there was this announcement that China would invest 1 trillion US dollars over the over the span of uh of of, of of a few decades so that's a huge number right and that in itself is like oh as you said a neutral observation however it immediately became a concerned observation as soon as they, well, you know, Western countries started to realize where does this Belt and Road Initiative end, right? If it ends in Pakistan, (laughs) that's okay, you know, you you can have Pakistan, right? But it very quickly became evident that, no, it was not going to end in Pakistan, but it was actually extending all the way to some Greek ports, there are even some, you know, some some parts of Germany where, where the Build and, and Road Initiative ends, uh, especially with regards to the rail uh, railways. And that then very quickly became a concern, right? So, first a security concern from an inter-Western perspective of oh, do we want to have the, the Chinese own our ports? And then it became a concern of uh, are we losing out here? Why are why are other countries not choosing our gracious development offers and why are they suddenly choosing the Chinese ones?
1: And and that is very telling that perspective that the way that the west straightaway thinks about hey how does this divide the world right rather than saying hey there's an interesting initiative here maybe we should see how we can somehow benefit from this how can um, you know let's see if there are parts that we can join is this going to make for example consumer goods in europe cheaper you know surely that's a good thing from your average european perspective no the reaction was straight away as if this was a challenge to their divine right to dominate global politics right this 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 hardcore bubble thinking of the west saying the moment china or russia or anyone else offers an alternative that is a challenge to our divine status in international relations and that of course is exactly the damage that this kind of bubble does and what we will something that we'll discuss later that. The reaction of the West is not one that is rational. It is one that is based on this internal bubble delusion. This this belief that anything that gets developed outside of their own comfort zone, anything that gets developed that doesn't sound capitalist, liberal, and democratic, has to be somehow something dark. Has to be something that threatens the world and not just them. That's where the West is at its ugliest right they, they they have not just tried to convince the world but they have deeply convinced themselves that they are the only rightful controllers of human humanity's destiny of of our future
0: because from a rational perspective and i don't know if you remember this but i once wrote this in an essay for you so this must have been ages ago um there's also a, a clear environmental benefit to this because if you move uh, trade between China and let's say Europe onto rail, uh, you first of all cut uh, the, the the transport time from I believe six weeks down to 14 days and you obviously cut global emissions, um, right? So I, I remember writing this from, from this Perspective of an environmentalist, if you want to call it that, um, saying that hey, this could be great, right? If you move all of the all of the yeah I- exports, well, well, I mean just the trade between China and the EU onto rail, that, this would be amazing, right? And we would no longer have to be concerned about all those nasty pirates um, in, in 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 the different straits uh, on that path.
1: I, I I'm not naive enough to think that uh, Chinese initiatives are only good. Of course they aren't. In the sense good in the sense of promoting human well-being across the world let's use that as the variable for what is good and what is what is wrong um but here we've got an incredibly important country just statistically 1.4 billion people enormous gdp enormous diplomatic ties incredibly powerful country that is expanding its influence by building railroads i mean (laughs) i'd much rather have that than countries bombing other places. Military action across the world. Who, who engages in that kind of military action? The West. So it is, it is somehow fascinating, but also highly disturbing to perceive a West that feels threatened by the building of railroads, while at the same time having military interventions across the globe against the will of local populations. Uh, it, an alien comes from outer space and looks at the situation, they will point at China as the good guys. They won't point at China as the bad guys. Hey, they're just trying to connect the world. They're trying to to connect humanity. Surely that is a beautiful, noble ideal, right? Now, again, before anyone misquotes me here, I understand that there are some serious and sometimes even nefarious consequences to what China is doing. But from a big picture perspective, it shows how deep the West has sunk inside of its own bubble.
0: Right, and now you need to, from a Western perspective, think: okay, how do we how do we frame this? Right, because, I mean, yeah, the Western ways weren't the nicest ways um, with dominating global global sea trade routes. Um, so let's think about, from a Western perspective, how do you keep uh, countries from the global South from actually allowing Chinese investments? And uh, this is then when, in two thousand seventeen, in particular, um, this kind of like debt trap diplomacy term was coined, uh, invented, I want to say, because there are some, or there, there are some some projects within the Belt and Road Initiative uh, that, w- at least now in hindsight, I'm sure that country that leaders from from the countries affected will would not make those decisions again. And the most popular or the most famous example here is the the deep sea port in Sri Lanka. Right, where Sri Lanka had this deep sea port built by China as part of the Belt and Road Initiative, um, and then unfortunately, you know, the, the trade flows didn't develop the way they expected, and they couldn't basically repay this. And the consequence of this was a, a ninety-nine year lease, where now China basically, and this is difficult, right, in the in the terming and in the framing, China basically owns this port now, um, and this was then always portrayed as one of the very negative examples of. Um, yeah, of the impact of the and Road Initiative.
1: And this is one of those situations where we find it difficult to look at nuance, right? So yes, it is true that there are some dangers, but there are, that is similar to me buying a house, mortgaging it out to the bank, and then, I mean, at some point running into trouble because I made some bad calculations, or maybe because the bank advised me badly, you know, it could be the bank's fault, and then the bank saying, hey, we're going to repossess your house. Um It is, that is not great when it happens and it's a problem and it's something to be careful of, but it doesn't make China the evil villains of of global politics, right? It it is not that they militarily forced Sri Lanka to go into this agreement. The long-term consequences are also nowhere near as serious as Western media would like to portray this. It's not as if China now owns Sri Lanka commerce uh, overall, they just have some rights in terms of ex- commercial exploitation with respect to this port. So it it then becomes a situation where people hear something about how China has now essentially repossessed this port. Uh, uh, this is another sign that that comforts me because it shows how evil and how negative and how destructive Chinese foreign policy, the, the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative is. Well, completely forgetting that uh, when it comes to debt trap diplomacy, the champions of the past 70 years have been the West, have been the United States and Europe, heavily indebting countries in, for example, Sub-Saharan Africa and only very reluctantly providing any debt relief while basically holding it over the leaders of those countries as a sort of democles. Like, hey, if you don't follow our political perspectives, if you don't follow our narrative, and if you don't have the kind of elections that we want, we're not going to forgive your debt. We're only going to forgive your debt if uh, you do exactly as we tell you. So it's, it's once again one of those situations where the West is just full of it.
0: I mean, that's the Western bubble. I mean, what this is what this podcast is about, is uh, the democratic, value-driven West is doing this uh, debt trap diplomacy, and then you have the authoritarian, communist, if you could call it that, um, China that is doing this, right? This is obviously a huge difference. And I think this is what you can then observe in the overall framing and then and the narratives you see out there. So I've so far only heard about this uh, deep sea port in Sri Lanka. But then, in the research uh, for, for for this episode, um, you know that we we we, we receive from from uh, from our researchers basically. Uh, we
1: should shout out to our amazing researchers.
0: Exactly, um, they they have then basically hinted uh, at uh, the uh, Mombasa Nairobi Standard gosh uh, uh, Railway, which is a project um, in Kenya, right, connecting these 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 two big cities, and which has contributed to more than 2% of Kenya's uh, GDP in the past, um, right? So, so there's also very positive uh, projects from the Build and Road Initiative, but those we don't like hearing about in the West.
1: No, because it, it, it's one of those situations where bad news r- confirms our pre-existing notions of the evil nature of authoritarian regimes. Good news doesn't really seem to align with our way of thinking and we'd rather block it out right so if, if when china or russia or north korea or iran or anyone does something that any neutral observer would say hey that's pretty good that has been that has improved human well-being across the world or in a specific region then we prefer to ignore it when there's anything that sounds dodgy that sounds problematic, then we very much like to make that part of our own confirmi- uh, confirmation bias process, right? Our own our own knowledge, our own conviction that we are right about China being the evildoers.
0: And to top all of this off, uh, we have the uh, President of the United States, uh, Joe Biden, uh, basically saying at, uh, I think it was one of the last uh, G7 summits, where the G7 nations uh, you know, Western nations uh, decided ah, this Belt and Road initiative is really is really working to a certain extent for in China's ways. We need to counter this somehow, so let's bring together the, uh, the, the, the I don't know the, the G seven Road and Belt Initiative. Um, and and there, while presenting this, uh, he said, and I quote: "We got together literally billions of dollars in the G seven nations to provide for alternatives to China's what they call Belt and Road Initiative." Which is basically a debt and nose agreement that they have there's not much going on they are they are they are real debt they're going to they're going in trouble um end quote right and here you have this is the western well i mean it's also the u.s president so i hope that he is the western bubble uh, in this sense but this is if i had to summarize the western bubble for this episode i think i would pick this
1: quote i would expect Millions of people who over the past 40 years have exactly experienced what it's like to be indebted to Western nations, pulling their hairs out when they hear that, right? It's it's, it's, The hypocrisy is strong here. Uh, Look, powerful nations want to control less powerful nations. And, And of course, there is a control mechanism that can be disturbing on the side of China, and it has led to problems. But the West kind of needs to have a very hard look at itself and say, well, hey, how can, you, how can you complain about China when you have been responsible for your 80 years of exactly doing what you're accusing China of doing? Um, and the damage of that, of course, is that the West doesn't understand it. And that's something that we will, they don't understand those new dynamics, they don't understand why the rest of the world doesn't listen to Joe Biden, that kind of thing
0: but before we move on to to the to the damage, there's one one final aspect I think that would be really interesting to discuss for the bubble, and I think it also it shows the bubble because right now we've been again we've been talking rather conceptually, right? But this is a, a very nice example that showcases the Western bubble thinking, and this is uh, I've read it out in the fact sheet: this 10-year anniversary meeting or celebration. Where you know China invited everyone who's part of the Belt and Road Initiative to to, <coughs> to attend. Um, we can say that fewer countries attended than in the past. Um, you know that that might be to to uh, just a difficult global climate at the moment, also travel costs um, or, uh, or or recent visits before. Um, but here again from a Western perspective, and and now from my own perspective, right? I was I was a bit sick last week, so I couldn't really follow the news as much as I would like. Um, But um, when it comes to who attended the summit, and uh, we put this into the fact sheet on purpose, uh, what I got from the the headlines that I was reading is that it was basically a meeting between uh, Xi Jinping, Vladimir Putin and the Taliban. Um, yeah, sure, there were also some other nations, right, the ones nobody cares about, but those were basically, and Hungary was there, that we care about because it's in the West. But those are basically the three parties that met, the the axis of evil. Uh, it was just Iran and North Korea were missing.
1: And so put yourself in the shoes of your average news consumer in Berlin or in London or anywhere in the West who doesn't really follow these things with any details, but it follows the news, reads the newspaper once a day. They will now have this uh, almost comical picture of 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 their, you know, the, the people that they've been told are the the danger to to the world, danger to democracy, the danger to liberalism. Vladimir Putin, Xi Jinping, and the Taliban of all groups, uh, sort of like like the villains who have to be fought by superheroes. Right, you've got the Avengers and you've got the the villains that they're fighting. And those villains have some kind of summit of how can we destroy the world? That's kind of, that's the image that is being portrayed. Whereas in reality, of course, this is, this was a meeting between many more countries and um, it was a meeting that is very consistent with previous meetings over the past decade or so. So it is, there's nothing nefarious about this meeting in itself, but if the Western press and Western politicians only talk about these three candidates, Putin, G, and the Taliban. Of course, that then reinforces the bubble. That that reinforces our perspective on oh, we're really in trouble because what did they agree on? What kind of terrorist attack will be will be carried out next? Right? It's um, it's it's fascinating. It's funny, but not haha funny um, to to observe this.
0: Well, because notably, there were some some very serious countries attending, right? So not the usual suspects uh, with industry of influence of China and Russia, right? Um, but we also talk about Ethiopia, Egypt, Indonesia, Pakistan, Hungary, Chile, Argentina. That's not the axis of evil, um, at least at least not yet. Who knows? I mean, that's you, know, you <laughs> You never want to count out these developments. But you have some very serious countries who have some very serious interests with, within this Belt and Road Initiative. And as I said, I mean, some of them really benefiting from it in the past. I mean, Kenya also attended, Tanzania. Um, but, right, those are serious countries. And again, I mean, we are aware of this, that, that these countries are attended, but I, I genuinely believe if you were right now, where you to ask random people on the street, probably half of them wouldn't know that the summit has happened. But the other half is going to tell you well, who was there? Let me think. Russia, China and the Taliban.
1: And, and these countries that you just named before, these are serious countries with serious leadership and certainly leadership uh, ambitions, right? I mean, Egypt has been traditionally a leader in the region. Indonesia, Pakistan, Argentina. These are major, major nations. And what is fascinating about that list and there, there there were more she said but hungary is the only eu member and that says something about our bubble right so hungary is already in the west in sort of seen as like the the black sheep of the family because of internal politics where there, there's a lot of concern about the 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 situation and the approach of hungary towards the rest of the world this is the only country that actually wants to connect to china at this moment wants to connect to the belt and road initiative and that means that the rest of the west is left out of these dynamics so you've got these very powerful influential countries coming together and just say how can we cooperate what kind of things can we learn from each other how can we benefit from each other and the empty seats in the room are seats from Europe and from North America. In a world where statistically Europe and North America are losing ground, surely this seems like an enormous strategic blunder. There is a, um, there, there, there is a middle ground between we do not want to fight China and we are going to submit to China. There is a middle ground where you say, hey, China is a powerful, legitimate nation. Let's see how we can cooperate, and let's say, see where we've got a problem with them. But instead, the West is trying to implement a weird boycott, and the rest of the world, the global South, if you like, basically says, okay, you boycott whatever you like, but we're going to do business. Thank you very much. And can you explain to our listeners what is the problem? And
0: we've mentioned it a few times already, but this is incredibly damaging. I mean, well... To the world, uh, to the world in some extent, yes, but mostly to the West. Because first and foremost, the West is missing out, right? It's only Hungary that's attending and uh, then Hungary is being <laughs> told off about this, right? I mean, so you could see the reaction within within the Western media that um, so you have, you now have uh, Xi, Putin, the Taliban and Viktor Orban, right, the, the new axis of evil. So you have Hungary being portrayed in a very negative image. Um, nobody else is attending, nobody else is interested in attending from the West. And as you said, the West is missing out economically. Um, this could be you know, some form of new stability that we're talking, right? I mean, the more, well, okay, this is this interdependence theory, right? That the more economic trade there is, the the, the, the more the likelihood of war is, is being decreased. But at least you're talking to each other. Um, and with this, the, the West is just, I mean, blocking itself off of global cooperation, but it's also blocking global cooperation in general, by kind of forcing other countries to show colors, right? To say, mm, am I going, am I not going? Because let's say I attend the summit, what is like, how many Western ambassadors are going to call me up and complain about this?
1: Right. So nobody knows what the next 50 years will bring. And when I mean nobody knows, that's always been the case. But if you had asked your average international relations student in the 1990s, what is the 21st century going to bring? The answer would have been quite consistently in terms of you know, the world is going to turn Western. Because that was the, the paradigm at that time, right? People believed that the West had found a golden formula. And we knew, we thought we knew because we were wrong. But we thought we knew what the world would look like in 2050. Now, in 2023, nobody knows what the world's going to look like in 2080 or by the end of the 21st century. However, what is clear is that there's a train leaving towards that future, and the West is not on board, right? The West is sort of stuck at the station while everyone else has gotten on the train and say, "Okay, let's see where this train goes to. The West is still doubting what to do, how to behave, and not cooperating with these changing global dynamics. And the result of that is that the West is increasingly disconnected from a reality that's out there, a reality that they don't control, at least not at the moment because they choose not to engage with it, a reality that is very powerful, that has a lot of enthusiasm behind it, from countries that feel that they now have an opportunity that wasn't available to them in the 20th century. And the result is that the West is only digging its own grave, right? It is only making itself less relevant in the future with respect to the rest of the world, desperately trying to cling on to what they have. And this is, by the way, very reminiscent of declining empires throughout history, right? The Roman Empire, at certain moments, the Egyptian or the Chinese Empire, that at the in times of decline, in times of loss of power, they cannot connect with the new dynamics with the changing world order. They desperately try to hide behind their walls and say to others, if you're not with us, then you're against us. And it only exacerbates the fall from grace, if you like. And that's exactly what the West is facing right now. And the danger, as you rightfully said, is that they're taking other countries with them as a result because they're forcing other countries somehow to make this choice between either you're with those new dynamics or you stick with us, the the good old good guys. Uh, that, that will be here for you. Uh, as a result, the West is responsible for an enormous amount of tension and unnecessary lack of cooperation. Uh, uh, going back to your, your words before, they are blocking railroads to connect the world. I mean, if you're blocking railroads to connect the world, there is something wrong with you, right?
0: And, I mean, what, what is always... Funny to me is theoretically, you know, one of those Western ideals of free market, right? Um, this is theoretically the free market. You have two players uh, who are both offering uh, solutions. Well, they 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 pretend to offer solutions, um, and theoretically, the rest of the world can choose. Uh, so this is you know, and and whatever whichever option works best for you, you choose. This is the free market, right? And you have the West sitting there and saying yeah, it's, you know it is a very free market and you can choose whatever you want but if you choose the other side you're evil you know this is like me saying hmm what i don't know what i need new shoes uh should i get adidas or should i get uh nike and then uh, and then adidas tells me uh, oh you know a real german only buys adidas uh would never buy nike you know that's because nike they're using slave labor and all the other evil things and we're we're using we're using child labor not
1: slave labor, so that's not as bad yeah, so it's, it's completely inconsistent, as it so often is. I mean, the hypocrisy is you know, astounding in the West. And, and I'm not saying this to, to sort of whack my finger at the West and go, Woo-hoo, you're there's something wrong with you. It is just frustrating, because if you engage in this kind of hypocritical thinking, you cannot actually look at productive and constructive alternatives, right? On top of that, I would add that, yes, you're absolutely right, that from a Western perspective and also to a certain extent from Beijing's perspective, this is like a a war between two alternatives. But the rest of the world, those countries that you mentioned, Argentina, Indonesia, Egypt, uh, they are not necessarily seeing it like that. They're seeing it as a world order that is now absolutely multipolar, where it's not about who are we with or who are we against? Simply what opportunities are there for our own country to thrive? What are the opportunities that we have available to us? And we are not interested in playing this game. but the, You know, juvenile, who is the strongest, uh, China or, or the West? It is not relevant to a lot of countries in the world anymore. They just see a world of opportunities. They're, they want to be part of that. They want to benefit from that. And the fact that you've got the West desperately trying to play a game of "I need recognition, I need to be seen as the center of all your thoughts and all your actions" is just horribly antiquated.
0: To stick with my shoe analogy, this is basically uh, not choosing either one of the big players, but maybe going with a local brand uh, from I don't know somewhere in Brazil with sustainable. Um, Sustainable, sustainable supply chains and, uh, I don't know, a, a friendly lady that sells you them.
1: And with some, maybe some good consultants from Beijing, right? I mean...
0: Uh... <laughs> exactly.
1: And what now?
0: So, so, so let's actually look into the future um, of me buying shoes and, uh, and global, uh, global supply chains and trade routes. Because we are talking about a competition that the West cannot win. Um, and here, as always, we ask ourselves the question, what would winning even look like? Um, like, from a Western perspective, what do you want? You you don't want China to succeed in controlling global trade routes. Okay, what do you want? Right, apart from that, do you just want to be destructive, right? Stop stop the railroads
1: from being built? Or do you want
0: to create anything else, anything of value for once?
1: And and the the deep emotional answer to that, which people would never articulate, because first of all, it's not... Feasible and it's 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 also it's not moral. Is well, we 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 the West really want to control those trade routes, right? But there is that is of course not a practical, realistic scenario. So there is no scenario of winning. There is no clarity about what actually needs to be achieved. And this is something that you see in international relations all the time. And it's particularly visible moments of crisis. We talked about it with respect to Ukraine. The 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 question of what is it exactly that your optimal outcome looks like? It's a fundamental question to ask because then you have something to work towards and to communicate and maybe to cooperate on. Say to China, hey, you know, we're not comfortable with what you're doing because we're afraid that this is the outcome, but we've got an alternative outcome and maybe we can find a middle ground. But without that alternative outcome, without knowing what winning is, all you're doing is basically engaging in an emotional struggle in a uh, in a, a psychological fight with yourself and with others about who you want to be and who you want the world to be. And the result of that is, of course, very destructive.
0: You're managing. And this is another theme, right? We've, we've had uh, time and time again in this podcast is that the West lacks vision of where it wants to go. It's now only managing problems. And this very much feels like it as well, right? That you have... A bunch of managers trying to manage the impact of the BRI, trying to manage uh, an alternative without actually. I mean, because I, I mean, well, I've I've said this before in the podcast, right? That I'm a big fan of of these visions, right? Of someone saying, okay, this is where I want to take the world, and let's go this direction. And I feel like China did this um, with. I mean, obviously, hey, this is with self interest. I I'm, I don't see anything wrong with self interest in this world. Um, but China saying that. We want to go this way. We want to connect the world uh, via via rail because the West is dominating the, the global sea routes. Um, so this is where we want to take it. And in the West, instead of saying, okay, we want to take it into this direction, it's very much, in a, oh, we just don't want to take it in your direction. But we haven't really defined what our direction, our ideal direction would look like.
1: So it that's that's a really scary scenario where you are a manager but a manager with a you with huge emotional package and then so you're you're just managing a situation because you've got no long-term vision, you've got no long-term plan, but at the same time you've got a long history of build up anger and resentment and insecurity and and disconnect with your surroundings. Well, that is usually not a path to have a productive organization to to have a successful organization in which you're working, right? So exactly that. We we have a dangerous formula of a West that doesn't know what it wants, but it desperately is trying to cling on to some past that no longer exists and is not going to come back. And it is dragging the world down with them if they're not careful, causing hardship, not just for the rest of the world, but also for your average Western consumer citizen, uh, who will actually feel the results of this, who will wake up one day in 50 years' time and see a world that they are no longer influencing, that they're no longer connected to because the global realignment has moved on without them.
0: This seems like a great moment in today's conversation on the global realignment. If you have any questions, comments or regards, make sure to send us an email to thewesternbubble at gmail.com we will try to incorporate them in our following episodes. Thank you very much to the listeners for joining us today. Make sure to join us again next week when we press the Western Bubble. That is it from my side, Balder. Which closing quote did you pick for us today?
1: The Belt and Road Initiative in many ways finds its roots in the Silk Road, the trade uh, that happened thousands of years ago, even between the Roman Empire and the Chinese Empire, that was all went through the Middle East, And that connected these enormous populations while these populations essentially did their own thing, only traded with each other. And um, British British historian Peter Frankopan wrote about this. And he said, we think of globalization as a uniquely modern phenomenon. Yet 2,000 years ago, too, it was a fact of life, one that presented opportunities, created problems, and prompted technological advance.